Hello, readers. Jim Piddock is a longtime actor and writer of stage and screen whose film credits include Lethal Weapon 2, Best in Show, and You Will Meet a Tall, Dark Stranger. And he's just written the story of his life in the new book titled Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood. Jim, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? Very good, thank you. Good morning. Good morning to you. So what was the moment that you realized that you had what it takes to be an actor as uh, displayed in a movement class in college following a particularly filling Chinese food lunch? <laughs> I love talking to people who have read the book. Um, yeah, I, it was uh, one of those seminal moments in life, my first day at drama school when you're trying to impress everybody. And um, uh, we had, uh, as you say, I went for a very large lunch. I wasn't used to being up that early because at university I'd rolled out of bed usually about 12 o'clock. Um, so, so it was a full day for me. And by lunch I was really hungry. So I went to this local Chinese restaurant, ate pretty much everything on the menu, waddled back to the drama school and discovered we had uh, what was ominously called movement class first thing in the afternoon. And that was certainly not the kind of movement that I had in mind. Um, but I went into the class and we had to wear these, it was the late seventies. We had to wear, the guys had to wear these awful outfits. We were, they were basically black tights with black roll neck sweaters and the women were in black leotards. So they looked fine. They looked kind of fairly cute and we looked awful. Uh, and I was highly embarrassed by the whole situation. And the, went into the class and it was a slightly camp American uh, teacher who said, okay, we're gonna do headstands now. And so he got us all in a line and in front of this mat. And he said, uh, you go into a headstand, two people will hold your feet and then I'll say release and you come out of it. So I watched a few people do this and was kind of ominously uh, kind of thinking this is getting worse and worse uh, that these people are really good. And, and I'm trying to impress as everybody is. So anyway, I got into my headstand and it was okay. I was just thinking I'm ahead here, this is not terrible. And then he says the magic words as people are holding my feet in position and release. And so I came down on the mat. And as I hit the mat, I did actually release the loudest, hardest, sharpest fart that you have ever heard in your life. It was like a gun going off. <laughs> it was like it was like a starting pistol. And um, I lay there with my eyes closed, just with my life or my non-life in show business flashing in front of me. And I thought, well, what could I do? I could be a lawyer. No, I can't, because I can't read those long books. That's terrible. Um, what am I going to do with my life? And um, it was like that moment when, if, if anybody has children who's listening, you'll know, when a baby or a kid toddler falls over, there's those two or three seconds where you're waiting for the inevitable scream and tears. And it's just that horrible pause beforehand. And there was this horrible pause. And I lay there with my eyes closed, just thinking, oh no, it's coming, it's coming. The derision, the laughter, it's gonna explode any second. And nothing came, absolutely nothing. So I, I kind of cautiously opened one eye and there was the entire class standing above me, looking down at me as if they were looking into an open grave. And I heard the teacher say, oh my God, what was that? And so without a beat, I said, it's my ankle. It's an old soccer injury. It goes every so often. And he said, oh, God, help him up. Somebody help him up. So these two very nice actresses helped me to my feet. And I limped or fake limped over to a bench nearby. And um, I sat out the rest of the class. And as I watched them go through these routines of awful things, I said to myself, 
you've got what it takes to be an actor. It was a, it was a seminal moment. I, I thought I could leave drama school now on day one. I don't need anything else. I can do it. Of course, I did need many other things. But um, but it was a moment where where, where I suddenly thought, yeah, that's it. I, I think I can do this. I can fool people. Of course, the the, the kind of um, postscript is after the class in the men's changing room. Uh, everyone's sort of saying, "You okay? You okay?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." It's um, feels better actually already. You know, sometimes it's a day, sometimes it's an hour, but right now I feel fine. And and they all sort of drifted off to the next class, and one guy hung back, and um, he actually also happened to be an American. He was an American student who'd come over to England, and he said, uh, "Jim," and he, he said this more of a statement than a question. He said, uh, "Jim, uh, you farted, didn't you?" <laughs> and, and I said, "Yep, yep, I did." And he put his hand up and went, "Fucking a man," and that was it. <laughs> my my reputation, uh, certainly among the men, because it's the word spread quickly. Uh, quicker than the fart. Um, and uh, so I sort of became um, a bit of a folk hero on that first day. Uh, but yeah, that, that's the first chapter of the book, which gives you a kind of, gives you a preview of the type of book it is. I mean, you call it um, my life story. It's, I guess it is a quasi memoir. It's really a collection. Uh, what started out as a collection of humorous and weird and uh, extraordinary stories of my 44 years in show business. I mean, I have literally worked uh, with everybody and anybody I mean, in, in show business. It comes in right around 300 pages and you're right, it's chock full. I mean, it's one story after another. You really don't it's, waste any word in this, uh, words in this book. And, uh, and it's shameless name dropping. I mean, I say at the beginning, I'm uh, unabashedly gonna name drop because that's what people wanna hear. And, and those are the good stories. Uh, not always. I mean, some of them are not about show business and there's quite a few life stories in there that I think are fun. Um, and that was the criteria. I mean, I, there are, as you say, it's 300 pages. There's 38 chapters. They're, none of them are particularly long. But there is, if there wasn't a good anecdote or a funny story or a meaningful story uh, for me and for other people, more importantly than me, uh, it wasn't in. I cut it. It was not in the book. So it's not like, and then I did this, and then I was in this film, and then I did that TV show, and then I did that play on Broadway. That, to me, would be boring. It would be boring. My, the story of my life told that way it would be really dull, and I, it would be for anybody else. So, so it really was set out to be a piece of entertainment and humor with a bit of philosophy and, and the judgments that I make. I mean, I do draw conclusions from all these stories. And the conclusion from that one was that you can fool most of the people most of the time, but you can't fool everyone. Um, so, which is not a unique expression at all. But, but you know, I, I think, and what's refreshing for me about the book is that some stuff came out when I was writing it. It, it, it became a slightly deeper book on a certain level in that uh, I, I do think there's some sort of serious philosophy that comes out of it that I've learned through, I mean, I'm in my mid sixties now that people seem to be relating to and the stories of birth and death and love and loss and things that are very relatable. And that was important to me too. Um, when I write movies or, or, or TV shows, I don't wanna write just about that subject. That subject has to be bigger than me. So, I mean, let's take an example. If you're writing about British runners winning an Olympic medal, you know, if you do that, it's a boring story. If you write Chariots of Fire, it's about something else. You know, it's a, it's a movie that wins an Academy Award. The same with uh, The King's Speech. If you write about a, a, a king, a monarch trying to get over a stutter, who cares? 
but when you write it the way it's written, it becomes a story that everyone can relate to and it becomes bigger than what it is. And I wanted this book to, to, to reach an audience well beyond people in show business, people that care about show business, people that want to be in show business, people that are, read trashy magazines, all, all those people are naturally going to enjoy it for various reasons, but I wanted it to reach beyond that. And, and the most satisfying thing since the book was released three weeks ago uh, is that I, I have had a response from um, two ministers in the Midwest, two religious ministers. I've had a response from um, a 20-year army veteran in, in Brooklyn. Um, I've had various people who I have on, on surface would say, what do they have in common with this, you know, relatively well-educated Brit who, who's danced his way life th through show business and stuff and Hollywood and, and you know he's a Hollywood elite who cares and all that crap uh, but these people you know contacted me and actually had me on their their own podcasts uh, because they they said that they related to the book so so deeply and it meant an enormous amount to them and and they connected with it that to me was worth a million great reviews I mean it really was so <clears throat> so heartening to me that that I knew that the book had, could has the possibility of, of getting way, way beyond just another memoir because I really didn't want to write that. I'm not well known enough. You know, I'm a, I'm a working actor whose face people know, but nobody really knows my name. Um, and, and most people will recognize the face or, or certainly will absolutely know one of the 130 something shows I've been in and, and films. Um, so, so I, I knew that that's not going to sell the book. So, what has to sell it is that it's it's worth reading for for its own sake. Yeah, and one of the reasons why I think myself and plenty of others have enjoyed your comedy over the years is that there's a certain stoicism to it, Jim, and that implies uh, being in touch. A lot of people associate stoicism with emotionless. No, that's that's not true. People who are stoic, uh, they get emotional. It's just you have a, a good command over your emotions and also an understanding the full spectrum of emotions too. For instance, you did just mention that you do touch on death in this book. You were in your 20s when your father died uh, suddenly and unexpectedly, which yeah. you learned on a phone call from your mother. How did this affect you going forward? Well, it was, a again, I was 22 uh, and it was completely unexpected. Um, he, he literally got up one morning. He was in his 50s, mid 50s and had a slight headache and, and said to my mother, um, you know, I'm not feeling great. I might, I might stay at home today. And my daughter, my, um, my daughter, my younger sister was, was, uh, was at home and she was, she went off to school. I think she was the last person to see him actually alive. And she went off to school and he, he don't say goodbye and said, I'm, I'm just going to stay at home today. Um, my mother was off at work. She worked as a receptionist at, um, in a, in a doctor's office and she came home for lunch and he was unconscious um and he never regained consciousness he died two hours later he had a massive stroke but i remember that call as if it was yesterday i was on tour with this play uh children's play it was my first ever job and and we arrived at the school to do the show and the head mistress or the the principal or whatever you call it here um, said, uh, which one of you is Jim Pitter? And I kind of reluctantly raised, raised my hand and she said, oh, there's a phone call for you. Okay. And I, and I went to answer it. And this was about <clears throat> nine, nine o'clock in the morning. And I hadn't spoken to my mother for a couple of days and because and we'd been on the, on the road. And uh, I, I remember so distinctly her voice saying, um, 
Oh, Jim, it's mum. I, I, uh, I've been trying to reach you for a couple of days. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's just been, it's been difficult to... And those days we didn't have cell phones, obviously. And um, she said, I'm afraid I've got some bad news. And I'd just been home about a week before because uh, I hadn't been feeling very well. And I had some sort of flu and had tests done and I was fatigued. And, and I thought, oh, God, they got the results back from that. And it, of course, it was self-involved. It was immediately, <laughs> oh, it's about me. And I thought, oh, shit, there's, there's something awful's come up in the tests. And then there was a speech. She said, yeah, I've got some bad news. Um, it's dad. And I went, oh, OK. She said, he's had a stroke. And I'm thinking, at that point in my life, is a stroke to do with your brain or your heart? I didn't know. I just knew it was something old people had. And I thought, well, he's young, so he'll be fine. He's had some sort of stroke. And then there was this beat. She said, he's had a stroke. And there was this beat, one, two, three, four. And then she said, and she could barely get the words out, and actually he died. And those four words, and actually he died, just were so impactful to me. I mean, they, they, it was such a, I remember thinking, died it, it sounded like he'd done something it was a verb he actually he died it's like actually he you know threw a ball he he i don't know he read a book or whatever it, it just it felt like he'd done something but of course it meant he was no longer doing anything he, he was finished doing anything and it was so sudden and i was in shock i mean i i was in total shock for uh the whole of the next you know several hours i mean I, the first sign was that i said to everybody, okay, let's do the show, which was insane. Mm. I mean, insane. And people looked at me like, what the hell is, you know, they were like, we're not doing the show. Your father just died. You know, you have to go home immediately. And, and so that was the first sign to me that I was not really absorbing this particularly. And then um, I, I made my way home by train and car and bus or whatever, got home and, um, you know, finally, when the reality of it hit, you know, and I, I went into his office and at home, you know, his home office and saw, came back from the hospital in a plastic bag, which was his watch. And I don't know what else it was, maybe his wedding ring, that was it. And I, I suddenly f w was furious. I was so angry that that had survived and he hadn't. Mm. And, um, and then my sister sort of came in and uh, I lost it. That was when I lost it, you know. I haven't talked about this actually on any, I've done probably 60, 70, 80 interviews in the last month, and I've not talked about that in depth. So that's a, a, an interesting question because it took me just now into a, into that place again. So that that's the story. Yeah, and, and then obviously there's a, I mean, this, the book, as you know, is very lighthearted, but there are moments like that where where things kind of get a bit more real. No doubt about that. Do you think that your dad's death allowed you to let go of England and eventually moved west to pursue acting? Yes, yes. Another very good question. Um, it, I think it did. It, I think it. I I was um, in a after I'd worked a couple of years. It was my. It, I sort of uh, then went on to do some repertory work in theatre, and and, um, and then I was out of work. And I think being unemployed in the profession I'd chosen was sort of like, oh, okay, this is, this is a reality slapping you in the face too. And, and I, I, um, I kind of went into a, a bit of a funk and, uh, and I think I, I write about it as being the darkest point in, that I remember. And, and, and yeah, I was offered an opportunity to go to, to Berkeley for three months to direct at the drama school where I'd gone to in London, they'd opened up in, in, in Berkeley. Um, and uh, so, so they asked me to go and direct something. They'd obviously forgotten about the um, flatulence on day one. Uh, 
and um, they'd asked me to direct, which I had actually directed by then a couple of things in, in, in the theatre in England, um, in the theatre that I was a, a member of, an acting member of. And so I, I went for three months and, um, uh, and I did a one-man show, which I had in my back pocket. I sort of asked this writer if I could do it. Uh, I'd seen it in England and I'd really liked it. And, and, and I did it in, um, it's about a soccer goalkeeper playing on a Sunday morning. And, and he said, the reason he gave me the rights, he was quite a well-known writer, actually. He said, if you can get this made in America, then yeah, all power to you. Um, yeah, and, and let me know if you can uh, and when you can't. And of course, I took it round to every theatre in San Francisco and they all said, who are you, quite rightly, and what the hell is a soccer? Uh, at that point in, in 1981, it was uh, soccer wasn't exactly a big sport in America. So, um, you know, I was at the end of that three months, I was about to go back to, um, to England. And um, then this guy who I'd, one of the hundreds of people I'd asked if I could do my play at his theatre called me up and said, the first play of our season's fallen through. How quickly can you get your one-man show together? So, um, so I, I found this director who I met out there, an English director who, who, who got it up in three weeks uh, with show up. And um, I think on second night, we had four people in the audience. It was an interesting experience. It was a very physical play. It was very very demanding. I was jumping, leaping, talking, shouting, whatever. Very intense for 90 minutes. And um, and then the reviews came out the next day and, and they were sort of, I couldn't have written them myself. I mean, I, they were just dream reviews and, and the show was suddenly a big hit and it got extended several times and it was sold out. And that took me to New York. Um, and then I did the show in New York eventually, but, but uh, a few, I think three, two months after I arrived in New York, uh, an agent had seen a, ta uh, a videotape of the, the, the play, which we had in those days, videotapes. Mm -hmm. and, and they'd sent me on an audition for a Broadway show. It was a production of um, Present Laughter with George C. Scott was directing and starring in. And, and I, it was my first ever audition in New York and I got the role, I got the role. And it was, um, Nathan Lane was in it and uh, Kate Burton was straight out of drama school. Uh, Dana Ivey's a wonderful New York actress. Christine Lati was her first ever show in New York. And, and George was directing and starring it. And so six months later, after this coming from nowhere, I was in a hit Broadway show. Yeah, and I don't want to neglect that. People are just going to have to read the book to find out more details, some interesting details. Nathan Lane had a very embarrassing thing happen to him on and something completely different. It was also yes. his Broadway de debut, and you also talk about working with George C. Scott and the joys and challenges that came along with that as well. Yeah. You also talk about lessons learned from guys like Sean Penn, underrating guys like Sean Penn and what their process is. So people yeah. are going to have to buy this book to check that out. I did want to ask you how Dustin Hoffman had an end direct and direct impact on you over the course of about four years yeah that was an interesting thing uh, by the way you were telling it about nathan's embarrassing story the book is full of embarrassing stories oh, yeah. almost, almost always at my expense yes hence the title by the way caught with my pants down which is <laughs> based on not just one was one major incident which has its own chapter but two others i mean to get caught with your pants down in the estate of one of the wealthiest, best-known business tycoons in the world <laughs> uh, is, is quite an achievement, and I managed it. Um, but get, to go back to your question, yeah, George, um, uh, uh, that, sorry, the, uh, Dustin Hoffman, yeah, but 
that was boy yeah in, in, in the lowest point uh, that I've mentioned, I was unemployed and living in this attic room in South London uh, with a, it was like a 10 by 10 room with, I had a, a small black and white TV. There was no room for a bigger one um, and, a, and a tiny bed. And I remember watching the 1980 Academy Awards. I think it was 1980. Yes, it must have been 1980. Um, and uh, just Dustin Hoffman won. Um, for best actor. I think this must have been Tootsie. I, I guess it was Tootsie. And he gave this speech about how he was accepting the award, not just for himself, but for every actor who's out there striving, you know, in obscurity to, uh, I'm paraphrasing really badly. It was a very, very emotional speech actually about, um, it was for everybody who's, who's trying and doing it and not getting the same sort of recognition that he was getting at that moment. And I was, I'd had a couple of glasses of wine and I was, I was this kind of weeping, self-pitying mess. It was a just disgusting kind of a self-indulgent, self-pitying mess. Uh, and three, four years later, um, I was in a show called Noises Off, which was a big, big hit on Broadway. Um, and we won sort of various awards. And I won a, an award, Drama Desk Award, and I, I remember at the ceremony, uh, Dustin Hoffman was doing Death of a Salesman on Broadway at the same time, just around the corner. And my girlfriend at the time was in that. Uh, that's a whole other story, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I, I got to know Dustin a little bit, you know, and he, he uh, somehow took a shining to me. He liked me immediately. And he first thing he said to me was, oh, you've got a Jewish soul. You've got a Jewish soul. And I didn't know what that meant. Um, I still don't know what it means, but I'm happy to have a Jewish soul if I've got a Jewish soul. I was raised as a as a Catholic, uh, uh, Irish Catholic, I suppose. So I'm I'm very happy to have a Jewish soul and an American spirit. Um, but but at this award, I, I when I got mine, he literally he was there with the, the cast of Death of a Salesman and John Malkovich and all these other people were there who was in it. And he started a standing ovation for me because he liked me. And um, it was an incredible feeling. I mean, uh, there are certain things that stick in you for, 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 for reasons that are, you know, tragic reasons like we've talked about my father and stuff, but, but that was, wow. I mean, I just couldn't, I had to pinch myself. You know, three or four years ago, I'm just, this man was a, an icon on the screen and now uh, he was giving me a standing ovation. It was a, it was a stunning moment for me anyway. It, it was for me. I can imagine. Now you eventually moved from New York to try your hand in Hollywood. And this includes a, a bunch of different read-throughs to try and land parts, of course. What's, uh -huh. your, what's your Larry David story, Jim? I knew you were going there. Um, I don't, let me just preface my Larry David experience with this. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that there's always a fine line between teaser and spoiler alert with these interviews. Um, <laughs> I, I eviscerate probably four, three or four people in the book. Mostly I'm extremely kind about people. Um, I eviscerate three or four people. And um, as you can guess, one of them is now, as we hinted at, is Larry David. Well, here, here's, here's the thing with eviscerating Larry David, though. Like, this is this is what he has begotten with his life's <laughs> work. I mean, this is this is what is yeah. expected of the guy from Curb Your Enthusiasm now. 
Yeah, I, and and by the way, I recognise him as one of the most talented people around. Um, he's a brilliant writer, and and uh, you know, he's funny, funny guy. But um, I had a horrendous experience, an audition experience, which I won't go into the details because because it is it, it, you can read about it in the book. But it was horrific, and um, and I never forgave him for that. That's why I can't watch Cobra Enthusiasm. I mean, I've seen bits of it, and I go, it's very good. It's really good. It's it's and it's a sort of show. Having done so many improvised movies with Chris Guest, I was an obvious to be in it. And I just said to my agent, I don't think I could do it because I'd smash the guy in the face. I'm so pissed off still about what he did. And um, so yes, he is one of the people. Um, there are other people. I, I uh, uh, one of them's dead, so they can't sue me. But there's the, there's there's only really three or four people I eviscerate. Uh, and in the chapter where I start saying that here are ten major A-listers I've worked with nine I loved and one was a, a we, in the book we use a, a four asterisks word um one was a four asterisks and you can fill in the blanks but um see you next Tuesday uh <laughs> then I go on to to actually uh sort of describe this the, the nine good experiences and then in detail the one really horrific one and 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 I think in that chapter um, in case anyone's thinking this is a book about sour grapes and bitterness, far from it. In that chapter, I actually rehabilitate many people's images because there's a lot of candidates for that four asterisk word. Um, there's three, four, five candidates, I think, that, are, that a lot of people guess would be. And so I actually say, no, they may have had a terrible reputation. They may be considered this, that or the other. I actually had a great experience and I love them for that, you know. So so in that respect, I think this is a book about rehabilitating reputations. I'm really trying to sell this, aren't I? <laughs> no, no doubt about that. Now, the the moment with Larry David involved an audition for Seinfeld, do you remember the character that you were auditioning for? Absolutely don't. No, I don't remember the character. I remember it was a British character. Okay. And there was Brits in there of all ages, shapes and sizes. And so they obviously weren't quite sure what they wanted. Um, and, and my experience, which I which I talk about, it, it was happened to another actor who was considerably older than me, and um, I couldn't believe that the same thing had happened. It was so shocking to me. Uh, and then, I mean, what, the book is also some bizarre coincidences have occurred in my life. I mean, really bizarre. I'm not a great believer in, you know, serendipity and this happens for a reason and and. There's a puppet master out there sort of, you know, controlling our lives. But sometimes you think maybe there is because some, some most bizarre things have happened. And I, I think I've met Larry David three times in my life. One was very recently at a, somebody's 70th birthday party. Mm. And, um, and it was I just saw him across the room and that was enough. Uh, I was then outside. Um, <laughs> but the, the week after that horrendous experience, which was let's say it was it was 1985 I think so it's a long long time ago the week after that I went to a wedding and um it wasn't particularly it wasn't a well-known person at all it was just somebody's wedding a friend of a friend and uh and I was sitting waiting for the ceremony to begin and who should come in and sit in the aisle about two seats away from me would was Larry David and and I I was still seething at that point and, and I did refrain from, I thought that it was not great wedding protocol for one guest to actually lay another one out unconscious before the ceremony. So I, I behaved very well. That's, that's I'm uh... a, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm not a violent man. I'm too much of a coward. Um, so <laughs> that's, that, that ended happening.
It's a good decision by you. Now you mentioned Larry David's a good writer. You're a great writer too, as evidenced by this book. The uh, the list of ten characters I think is a great example of that because you do go through and say why you love the first nine before getting to that tenth. I'm curious, Jim. Do you have a favorite place to write, and why do you love writing there? I have a couple of places I like to write. You know, some writers you see in in, in Starbucks or um, you know coffee houses. I shouldn't have mentioned a trade name; they're terrible. Um, anyway, you, you see them when you're typing away, and, and you go, especially in LA, everyone's a screenwriter in LA, you know. And and I I I get that because once I'm in the zone, I'm in the zone, and nothing can shake me out of it. It's a form of meditation. So I get why people do that and can do it. Um, I I. I have two places where I write uh, here, right where you see me. I don't, I don't know if this you put this out on video as well as audio, yep. but this is where I write. This is the nerve center. Um, it's my office in, in LA in, at home. Um, I did have an office separate from my house when my daughter was young because I just needed to get out. It was too, too much going on, you know, with a, a young child running around, pulling your leg, screaming daddy. Um, which I love to come home to, but I needed to do work. Uh, so this office is is um, it's actually lovely. It's like a British uh, it's like a British club. I, I could spin the computer around if you are on 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 video. Yeah. You can see here we go. Look, I'll spin the computer around. It's very it's all wooden panels and it's got this lovely vaulted ceiling. Where you can oh hit. yeah, that's nice. And it's very kind of it's very um, very kind of. But the guy who owned the house before me was was an anglophile and he built this about 20 something years ago and it's it's um it's very comforting to me it feels very much like a a gentleman's club that's leather and wood and fireplaces and um so I, this is where i feel really comfortable when i can shut the door and whatever um and I, and in london i i recently bought a, a, a flat there and and i have an attic room there that i write in which is considerably more modest than this um and i and i find that's great i can just lock myself away um so yeah that, that that's that those are the two places it, it, it's an interesting question that because i i only really started writing when i moved to la hmm. and i it partly because i was now not doing theater every day and not rehearsing or doing eight shows a week so I had the time but even when I tried to write in New York or London when I was there I lived in in, in London in New York for three years and, and obviously in London for two or three years before I left in terms of being a professional um, and I, I found it very hard to write and I think it's because there's so much going on there's so much stimulus in New York and London that I, I got distracted or I just I couldn't sort of focus and in, in LA suddenly life was a, the pace was slower there was a lot more free time on my hands it was a lot quieter uh, a, a city and so I it was almost like that was I found a, a refuge where I could write Although there are obviously differences, uh, the way you feel about Vegas is kind of how I feel about New York City. It really is hard to be alone with your thoughts in either place. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not a big fan of Vegas, and I explain why in the book. Um, it's just not my thing. You know, I don't gamble, and I, I, I find the commercialism and the uh, it's depressing to me. It's depressing to see busloads of morbidly obese people or, or, or people who have saved up and they're just going to waste their fucking money and just it's depressing and and it's seedy 
and, I, and I'm not averse to seediness. I worked in a sex shop for Christ's sake before I became an actor. <laughs> so I'm not averse to seediness of any kind, but Vegas just seems crassly uh, manipulative and, and um, abusive in, in my ways. And, you know, the, uh, it's just the personal injury lawyer advertisements, billboards everywhere. And you're going, what? Well, and gun advertisements for guns and, you know, you're in Texas, so it's it's very much a pro-gun state. And I just, I, I literally, as a foreigner, and everybody out who lives outside America just does not understand the American culture when it comes to guns and religion to a degree. I mean, no, I've got nothing against religions. Well, I do. I do have things against religions. That's not true. I think religions have caused most of the ills in the world. So why did I say that? I'm not against spiritual existence. I'm not against people believing in God at all. I think that's wonderful. But uh, um, but but wow, we've gone from Vegas to religion. Anyway, I, I find that that... Uh, um, We're going to talk we, about abortion next, Jim. Yeah, exactly. Let's go there. And then then you've lost your entire audience. And there's <laughs> now one listener left. And it's, it's my um, it's my sister in England. Um, yeah, no, no, New York, I just, I went to New York last week to do the Blacklist, you know, the show The Blacklist. Mm-hmm. And, and I hadn't been back to New York for almost 10 years. And, and it's interesting you say that because I felt uh, an overload. It was sensory overload the first two days I was there. I, I, was, I, I felt almost agoraphobic. I didn't, I was like, oh God, I just want to go back to my hotel room. This is so loud, so busy. And I felt like a, a boy who just stepped off a farm and been planted in the middle of Manhattan, you know, a, a rural boy from Montana who's like, what the hell is this? What am I, why are people living this way? Um, but then I kind of, I felt a bit more comfortable and, and I remembered what it was like living there. It was, it was also different. I was staying near where the World Trade Center used to be. And when I lived in New York, I never went that far south into Manhattan. So I didn't know that part of New York and it's very modern and very uh, concrete And to me, it didn't seem like New York. It could have been anywhere. It could have been any city in any country. So that felt kind of slightly weird, um, but I, I literally was there for to do the job, and and um, and then in my spare time I was doing these type of things that I'm doing with you. I was just <laughs> doing interviews about the book. Um, so so it was uh, uh, it was yeah, but I think it's an interesting thing that you say that about New York. You share your experience of working with some world class directors, guys like Tom Hanks, Judd Apatow. Woody Allen, Harold Ramis, and of course, Christopher Guest, who you first worked with in Best of uh, Best in Show, I believe. How did you land your role in Best in Show? And were the scenes that you filmed with Fred Willard as funny in the moment as they turned out to be in the film? Yeah, um, I, I ended up in that film because I knew Eugene Levy socially. Not super well, but I knew Catherine better, O'Hara better, but I'd met Eugene a number of times and I think I'd had dinner with him in Toronto when I was working there. Um, and he was, he'd obviously done um, Waiting for Government with, with Chris Guest and that been fairly successful in an indie f- film way. And I got this call completely out of the blue. Um, and it was Eugene who had just actually his, his own acting career had sort of gone into overdrive because of American Pie that had just come out the year before. And, and he called me and said, oh, we're doing this film with another film with Chris and it's, um, it's about dogs, dog shows. And we just thought that it, it might, there might be a role for you. And I was like, oh, well, great. And we said, would you come in and, and meet us at Castle Rock? 
And so I went in and I'd met Chris really peripherally a couple of times at parties. And he's more than Eugene, they're both, um, how, how, how do I put this politely? They're socially uh, awkward, maybe is the polite. They're very, they're not particularly gregarious. And um, Eugene is more um, puppy trained. He's more house trained, so he can actually <laughs> conduct a conversation socially. So I, I was in this office and um, the two of them were just sitting there behind their desks, almost saying nothing and telling me just, oh, the film's this, as Fred Willard's gonna play this boar in a, you know, bull in a china shop commentator. And we thought it would be interesting to have a straight Brit uh, beside him and and that was it and and then I sort of kept filling the gaps as one does you know um when you're with someone who's not particularly forthcoming uh, you would know as an interviewer you you kind of fill the gaps quickly and I just started babbling somewhat like I have on your show um and I found myself just talking nonsense you know so I, I didn't know what I was talking about and, and I, I, I finally stopped and went, this is just, I'm speaking for the sake of speaking. So I stood up and I said, uh, Chris, you don't know my work. Eugene does a little bit. Here's a DVD of my showreel, whatever. Have a look. And if it looks like the sort of thing, you know, I'd be delighted to be in the movie. And I left. I just walked out. And um, I was driving home thinking, oh, God, how could I have handled that any better? I, you know, I, why, why did I just keep? talking nonsense and then the phone rang and um by that stage we did have mobile phones and um uh, very quiet voice said um this is jim i said yes it's crystal guest uh, would you like to be in the movie and that was it <laughs> and i said yes i'd love to thank you and then, of course then it got very complicated because i was doing <clears throat> a show i'd written a creative called too much sun it was a british sitcom with uh, Mark Addy and Lee Majors of all people, um, and um, yeah, and Alex Jennings, it was a for BBC, and, and I was writing and producing it and show running it as it were, and it clashed, and, and so I managed to negotiate. The BBC let me out for three days to fly to Vancouver from London to, to do Best in Show, which they'd booked me for three days, and then I'd fly back. So I did the table read of the sitcom on Monday, flew to Vancouver, and met Chris, Eugene and Fred Willard on that Monday night. And then um, we're supposed to shoot Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but they were running behind. So we didn't shoot Tuesday and I had a day off, which I was very happy about because I had such bad jet lag. And then they were still running behind on Wednesday. So didn't do that. And then I got a call on Wednesday night saying, well, we're, we think we might have to even push this to Friday. And I said, I'm afraid we can't because I've got to be back in London for the taping of my show and, and the, the, the tech run of that um, before we shoot it in front of a studio audience. So we, on the Thursday, Fred and I shot from pre-dawn to post-dusk, uh, just all our stuff in an empty stadium. They'd already shot the dog show. So we had a few extras behind us to make it look like there was the full stadium. And there was very little in the outline. Some of the outlines we write, because I've written two things with Chris too, a TV show and a movie. Uh, some of them are quite detailed in terms of, you know, what the scene's about and some suggestions of jokes and who does what, where and when and how. Uh, but this was simply the two commentators, you know, just describe the characters essentially. And, and I'm trying to, and how I'm trying to keep the show on track because we're on the air commentating on this dog show. Uh, well, this idiot next to me is, you know, just saying the most stupid things. 
So are they trusted Fred enough to, to just go? And um, I didn't know what he was going to do because they, at the dinner on that Monday night, they'd sent me out the room when they wanted to talk about what Chris was going to do. So I wouldn't know. <clears throat> so all my reactions are genuine. And it was great for me because I hadn't done much improvisation. And I knew that my mandate was just to be a dog expert and to be real and be believable. And I'd studied this really incredibly tedious book called the American Kennel Club, something or other. It's like a Bible. So I'd learned all this crap about dogs um, that I could throw out there if, if we needed to have it. Um, it wasn't funny. Well, I tried to you know see if I could come up with something that was funny about it. But, but it was really just Fred, you know, wind him up and let him go. I mean, he's... It was like being in a clown car driven by a rambunctious monkey who's blindfolded and half drunk. I mean, it was just <laughs> insane. Um, I'm not to say that Fred was drunk, he wasn't, but but it, that was the, the metaphor I'm using. He, he yeah. was nuts. I mean, brilliant, brilliant. And uh, I, I reacted to it as best I could. And people say, well, how, how did you keep a straight face? Well, I, if you watch the movie closely, I don't. I mean, there's times when you see me starting to laugh but I knew that my character had to keep the show on track. So I control it and sort of smirk and go, yes, yes well, whatever, and then continue. And, and then I thought, I've got to build this in a way that's kind of amusing um, because I knew enough about comedy that the straight man, which I absolutely was in this, I'd never done that before. I'd always been the kind of goofy, clowny guy. And I thought I knew enough that if the straight man is genuinely straight, you can get as many laughs as the, 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 the funny guy, or you can make them twice as funny. Either way, it doesn't matter. You still get twice as many laughs. It doesn't matter who, who gets them per se. So I, I figured that I had to be continue this straight act, uh, but I wanted to put a twist on it. So I became amused at first by him, then confused that anyone this stupid could be sitting beside me as a commentator on this show. And then sort of downright angry and annoyed. And, but I still have to hide that too. So it was a great object lesson for me in playing stuff very subtly. It was acting with a small A. And so I had to do it all with my looks and my, my kind of body language. And whilst I was saying one thing, you knew I was thinking something else or was annoyed or whatever. And that was a wonderful lesson for me because it was also all improvised. So I kind of, I learned that A, I was a better actor when I was jet lagged. <laughs> so don't think too much. That was the lesson is don't think as an actor, just be and react in the moment. And that was a fantastic step forward in terms of my involvement as becoming an actor. And after that, I, 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 um, I think I changed slightly how I approached uh, comedy. Uh, I definitely was less broad in, in I mean, I, I fell off the wagon now together and did some shockingly uh, overacting performances, but um, but I, I sort of loved that dryness and that wryness, which actually is kind of who I am more. And um, save, save the big broad stuff for, for special moments or other people, let them do that. Monty Python reunions, things like that. Now, I just mentioned Harold Ramis as well. He gave what you consider to be some of the best advice of your life. What was it, Jim? Yeah, it's great advice for anybody in any field, in any uh, profession or any part of life uh, outside at work. Harold had this, it was great. Uh, he said, if you're in a room and you don't think you're the most smart or ta most talented person in that room, 
then go and sit next to the person who you think is. And it's just, it's, it's, it's a funny, wry piece of advice, you know, it's, but it's true. And actually it was true of his career. You know, Harold was a very, very clever guy and a very talented guy, but he managed to always, no one remembers him as much as they remember Bill Murray or whoever, you know, it is, uh, you know, he kind of, he, he was sort of the supporting actor, either as a director or a sidekick or, you know, uh, Dan Aykroyd. I mean, it, that, it, that's who you remember from Ghostbusters. Harold is the least memorable in a funny way, but he's there beside them, sitting next to them and standing next to them. And he's actually the brains behind it more than they are. So, so it was great advice. I mean, particularly for me, I mean, because I, I sort of related to that. And I've always been happy to be the sidekick or the, the brains behind something. And, um, you know, if I'm center stage with the spotlight on me, great, I'll take it. But I don't, I don't scream that that has to be me all the time. Harold was brilliant. And I'm glad that posthumously he's finally starting to get his proper due, especially as it pertains to the filmmaking process. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. I, I, I think... Yeah, you know, Judd Apatow was a big fan of Harold's and, and did some stuff on him and, and since. And I think people inside the business knew Harold was a real mover and a shaker. Um, you know, Animal House. I mean, all from that, I mean, Caddyshack, they were all Harold's, you know, brainchild, pretty much. And, and he was the, the the lead writer on all those things and, and then became a director. Um, so I think people within the business knew, but but, but he wasn't the face of it all. And 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 um, and I, I'm glad if it's you know again he died way too young, um, Harold, uh, a great loss. Uh, but I think he you know there was a part of Harold I always felt he he left LA and moved back to Chicago where he was from, <clears throat> and I always felt when he did that he sort of was almost saying I've I've done I've done what I want to do, and I and I know people that that have reached that place in their career, and um, they they they've. The, that, that's it you know I, I don't know if I want or have the drive to say anything anymore I've said it and, and I think many famous actors have done that um, um, it got to that point I think I think Cary Grant I remember in his reading his book saying I just had had enough of tripping over cables on dark sets and I, I was happy to to step away I mean all the, the kind of so some of the greats um, Marlon Brando Absolutely, Marlon Brando had had. I have no reason to act anymore. He, later in his life, he said, "I've I've exorcised whatever those demons were, and for him, they were demons. Hmm. For me, I don't think they were demons. They were, it's, it's another motivation." Well, science has found that some of the happiest people end up having four or five different career changes throughout their life, and that can happen earlier in life, of course, but especially later in life, where you continue to find ways to reinvent yourself. I think you've talked about this with moving to either the Bay Area, New York, or LA, like exiting whatever comfort zone that you're in, find something completely yeah. new, and it really focus, uh, forces you to focus and use your brain and pay close attention to what's going on around you. That's very healthy. Absolutely. You know how when you go to a new place, you really are much more aware of things. You notice things so, so much more. You become a kid again, a kid. And, and I think one of the, the things that comes out of the book and hopefully the, the life lessons is that whenever I've taken a major risk and got out of my comfort zone, um, which it's hard for a lot of us, you know, I, I, I'm a routine guy. I like to know 
I'm a homebody. I like to have my feet firmly on the ground. But for some reason, I'm not a gambler financially. I'm not a gambler physically. I, I'm a coward. Um, I don't, I never had trouble gambling professionally because basically becoming an actor or a writer is a gamble in itself. So why stop there? So I never really shied away from making tough decisions like leaving a successful theater career in New York and starting from scratch in LA, leaving you know what was a beginning to be a career in England and moving and never going back. Um, and sooner or later, someone will kick me out, but um, uh, no, they can't now, I'm a citizen. Um, but, but yeah, that, I think that's really important to, 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 to do that in life. And, and it, it, for, as I say, for me, even if in the short term it's been painful, in the long term it's always paid off. And I think we're entering now, um, I, don't, I don't know if I talk about this in the book, but I do believe uh, this in, 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 in my life that we've been through the industrial age, we've been through the technological age, we're still in the technological age, obviously. Um, we're almost entering the cyber reality age, uh, virtual rage. But I think that for most people of my daughter's generation, she's in her late 20s. And for, actually, even for people now in their mid 30s and upwards, um, we're in an entrepreneurial age. I think hmm. you said four or five, it's been proven that people are happier. I didn't know that. That's a very interesting fact. But then it's very encouraging because I think now, anyone under 35 or 40 is likely to have two, three, four, five careers. It's, it's more than likely, unless you are literally going into a vocation like a doctor. Um, uh, and even now, I know my, one of my doctors left that in his late 40s, mid 50s, early 50s rather, and became a financial advisor. Mm. Just completely threw it up and something he was doing as a hobby for people investing their money. He became a, 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 a real whiz kid uh, you know in terms of the financial world and he was an ear nose and throat doctor he, that's what he'd done for 25 years or 20 years so it happens and even in those professions um my my brother-in-law was a priest and he's now um, he left the priesthood and became a married man with three children and now three grandchildren oh, so man, people change that's a pivot yeah people change people have different lives but now more than ever my daughter's on her third career right now and uh, she's doing very, very well at it. Uh, but and a couple, you know, had their hits and misses, but she learned an enormous amount. And I think that that's, that's important for people to realize. And it, it, you can't actually, it's much harder to be successful now just by picking a job, getting educated at university, getting your qualifications, and then that's it. You're set for 45 years until you get your gold watch and you can then enjoy your retirement. I just don't think that's going to happen for many people anymore. And that's a good thing, by the way. I think it's a good thing. I think we, we get to lead three or four or five lives instead of one. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Now, you're close friends with Eric Idle. What does Eric yeah. mean to you? Eric has been a great friend for 25 years. We worked on one of the worst films ever made um, back in 19... 90 something or six or and um it's so funny uh, real quick jim it's so funny because i'd never heard of this movie before but just hearing the premise and the satire <laughs> potential and also looking at the cast i don't know how it didn't work better than that well i don't know because when you see those films with everybody that's in hollywood in them you know there's that there was a problem <laughs> the script was not good enough but they needed to jam it full of people and pay people lots of money to try and make it work 
And that was the case with this one. It just was, uh, I mean, Joe Esterhaus wrote some great thrillers, Basic Instinct, all those, you know, sexy thrillers of the 80s, but he's not a funny writer, fighter. he's not a comedian writer. And that film was, a uh, and directed by Arthur Hiller, who directed Love Story. So uh, I had a, a bunch of scenes with Eric Idle and, and Naomi Campbell, the supermodel. And my, I talk about it in the book, so I'll, I'll leave it there. But uh, it was an incredible experience. And, um, and uh, I became friends with Eric. We, we have very similar backgrounds. Uh, both of us lost our fathers at a very young age. His, well, I mean, way before mine. And uh, his before he was, um, I think, before he met him. He was coming back from the war. I mean, Eric describes in his great book, um, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. No, I'm plugging someone else's book, but I, I'm happy to because Eric wrote such a beautiful forward for my book, or as he calls it, a foreplay. Um, uh, so he, his father was coming home from World War II. He'd survived the war and was getting a ride home in a truck uh, full of, it was the back of a truck uh, in England, getting a home back to his hometown that was full of steel pipes, and the truck got into a, an accident, and his father was crushed to death by steel pipes, um, which Eric tells in, at the beginning of his book, and he says he thinks it's where he got his sort of sense of irony and, and humor from. I mean, because it's so dark that, but the irony and the humor in terms of I survived a world war for five years. And I'm literally 10 minutes from home or whatever, and that happens. I mean, you're gonna have a sense of the absurd uh, if, if that happens. Uh, and for me, Monty Python was a, a seminal kind of part of my upbringing. It was really a big influence because until that point, you know, it was Benny Hill or Frankie Howard or the comedians of those days, Morecambe and Wise in England. And, and suddenly, you saw that humor could be really very, very smart and intelligent and cerebral and also ridiculously silly. So that was very, very important to me. So I was delighted to meet Eric. That was just a thrill to me, uh, to literally meet one of my idols. Um, uh, and, and, and it was delightful that we, we hit it off immediately. We made each other laugh and um, we, we shared so much in common. We were both actors and writers and we both love football or soccer, as you call it, and cricket. Um, I also love baseball too. Uh, so, so we just, and he's probably you know, been my closest friend in LA and then we spent time in France too. He's had a place there for years in the summer. So yeah, he, 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 uh, he's a, a dear friend. One of the things that this book is, as you talked about at the beginning of our conversation, Jim, is a bit of philosophy. So my last question for you is, what does it all mean? I, in the conclusion of the book, again, I, I sort of, I didn't set out to write a book that was sort of philosophical or any kind of self-help or, or anything like that, but it had just emerged as I wrote it. And I think the thing that, that, that struck me the most was, and, and I, I write about it in a quite a, almost a spiritual way because it was a voice of a, a friend, who, who, an actor friend who passed away. And I heard his voice in my head saying, speaking, and, and whether you believe it was his spirit or my imagination, or I should see a mental health specialist because I'm hearing voices. Um, <laughs> I, I wrote it down. And, and one of the things is that, 
it was a conclusion that, that, that makes sense to me. It's that every single second of our lives, we're making decisions, we're making choices. And that who we are and what our destiny is, is the sum result of all of those choices. Now, we all have major moments of crossroads in our life where we have to make a choice. And we know that that defines where we go and how our life turns out. Um, and so, I, but I think more than that, I think we're doing it every second. And, and like a pebble being thrown into a, a, a pond, those ripples and those sound waves travel way, way, way further than you think. Um, you know, if you, I'm not particularly scientific, but uh, you know, sound travels infinitely almost. Um, so I, I think that we have to be conscious of that. And then you live life to the fullest. And that, none of what I'm saying is an original concept, but I think the way I can come to it through this book of telling funny stories and this, I think is, is a way that maybe opens the door to see that more clearly. Certainly it did for me, and hopefully and I'm, the feedback I'm getting, it does for other people. It, it, you know, laughter opens a door to your emotions and, and you can see things and feel things more clearly. And I'm a great believer in that, that, that every single minute or every single second you're making choices. You and I have made, <clears throat> you know, in however many seconds this is we've been talking we've made choices about what we say what you ask me that they're very thoughtful questions yours have been extremely thoughtful and, and very purposeful but um you made those choices of what to say and i've made my choices i i chose to talk about my father's death which i've not done in any interview thus far so those things have an effect and they may have no effect on anybody and people may listen to this and go about their life without, and people may listen to this and go, oh, I, one day I want to interview people like him because, you know, Trey is very good at it. And, and that, that's kind of fun to me. Or they may go, I want to do what Jim has done and, and try that because that sounds like fun. Or, you know, I think I could have a shot at that. It, it, or, or it may help people understand that we're not snotty Hollywood elites, you know, liberal elites all of us and we're a little bit but not a lot <laughs> and i think that's that i think that that's important to to open the door and go you know this is who we are this is what we we should be and on that note that slightly more philosophical note i really do think that that's that's the sum um sort of summary of the, the where i come to at the end of the book Beautiful. Well, I could have taken this conversation in seemingly endless directions, could have asked about the sex shop, could have asked about Bill Murray. But those are stories people are just going to have to check out in the book, Jim. Easy pickings. That's low-hanging fruit. Yeah, good. That's right. Uh, Jim Piddock is a longtime actor and writer of stage and screen whose film credits include Lethal Weapon 2, Best in Show, and You Will Meet a Tall, Dark Stranger. And he's just written the story of his life, the new book titled Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood. There's multiple caught with his pants down moments in this book. Uh, yes. Jim, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. Can, thank I, you can, I, can I add one little epilogue? Sorry sure. to, our, to our chat. Um, the money from this book is all going to charity. It's going to two that I mentioned at the beginning of the book, um, which are very close to my heart uh, for encouraging people from underprivileged backgrounds to, to have a get, get on in life and have the, the sort of advantages I that I, I, I had to give them that type of thing. I mean, I was 
privately educated and went to university. So I, I had a good start. And I think it's important that everybody gets a, a good start and, and, and equal playing field. So these are two charities. And then uh, I was going to keep some of the profits of the book for myself, but the last month has been so devastating to watch the news every night that I decided that that remaining 50% I was going to go to Ukrainian refugees um, because it's, it's, it, that problem is not going away and it won't go away soon uh, in terms of how they rebuild that country and where those refugees are housed and where they end up. So please, if not for me, buy it for for the for the causes um don't, it's not about me it's about them but but for those and i'm i'm i apologize i do not remember the name of those charities do you have those on the top of yeah your i do the 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 uh one in britain is called palace for life foundation which is uh, in connection with the soccer club i'm very involved with crystal palace football club a premier league club they have a separate foundation that does amazing work in south london and and around um of getting kids out of gangs getting them on the right path through soccer, other physical activities. They do immense work with um, handicapped children. And, and um, I don't know what the, what the right word is now. I'm always, I'm of that generation, is it disabled, handicapped? I can't remember. Disadvantaged children in one way or another. Um, and, and the BAFTA, the British Academy of Film and Television Arts um, has a program in America called Access for All, which does a similar type of thing. It's kids who, who, who don't have that opportunity to express themselves creatively. So it's a bit more art, arts oriented. Um, and then if they're serious about it, a possible pathway into the um, industry show business. So, so those two, two are the, the cho that I chose. And I, and I say that in the book at the beginning and at the end, I talk about them just so people know what their, their money's going to. Um, and then the, the, the Ukrainian refugees, there's two, because I won't see any royalties for the first three months until it's, it's done every quarter, uh, I'm still narrowing down which of the I think the best charity where the money will the most will go to the actual right place rather than administrative costs. And there's a couple of um, charities that are doing stuff for Ukrainian refugees. So I'll, I'll pick one of those in the next couple of weeks. That that's the specifically, but but it's going to go to one of them. All the more reason for people to buy this book, Jim. Thank you so much for all of it. Thank you. Sorry, I did that long postscript. That, no, not that. not a, not apologies. I'm I'm glad that we got it in there because that's something that I probably should have brought up on my own. No, no, not at all. And uh, lovely, lovely to talk to you. It's uh, early in the morning for me. I'm going to have my breakfast now. <laughs> Enjoy breakfast, Jim. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at gentlemanjesus.com. And thanks to Joshua Bates for the video editing. If you have any video editing needs, hit them up on Instagram at Forager Digital. And thanks to you for checking us out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at booksonpod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.